We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willard's getting booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson! Yeah! It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, uh, what else we got? Oh, your water bill's up 10%, but I think you knew that. But that's down from 20 I know that makes you feel better, doesn't it? Uh, in Ontario, adding more history to uh, avoid history repeating itself and in uh, in extremism and such. Uh, we'll talk about that also throughout the course of the afternoon. Uh, and joining us uh, in the first break, uh, Olivia McKay is going to be joining us. Mackay, sorry, president of the Children's Fund, 900CHML.com to find out more. Coming up this Friday, we light the CHML Christmas tree of hope. We start the campaign uh, for the Christmas tree of hope and. And uh, all of this, obviously, in aid of the CHML Children's Fund, which contributes to a bazillion charities, children's charities, uh, throughout the Hamilton area and has done since the mid-70s. So the tradition continues uh, this Friday uh, down at Gore Park when we like the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope. And uh, then, uh, of course, the, the, f- the drive begins from now until Christmas. Uh, everybody at the Children's Fund working very dil- diligently to raise as much money as we possibly can to help fund these charities, these children's charities, and all the money that comes in goes right the way, but right back out the door again, uh, all around the area. So uh, we'll be talking to Olivia Mackay coming up a little bit uh, later on. Also, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh, how much did it cost to go see the king? We'll talk about that. Also, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, everybody's food scientist, uh, everybody's favorite food scientist, is uh, talking about the food recall game. Now, this is interesting because I think it was a while ago we were talking about, well, just because it says best before this date doesn't mean that it's still not good. (laughs) The challenge is, is how far past that date you want to go. Anyway, we'll have those kinds of conversations coming up a little later on uh, this hour as well. And don't forget, uh, coming up after the four o'clock news, another edition of First Responders in Crisis. This is uh, the series that uh, CHML's Dave Woodard has put together. And uh, it runs every morning after the 8 a.m. news, uh, Good Morning Hamilton, and then every afternoon after the 4 o'clock news. And uh, obviously, we'll be uh, running it again after the 4 o'clock news. So I invite you to join us for that. Also, you may have heard uh, a few days ago, uh, Rosalind Carter, Jimmy Carter's wife. I mean, man, the, these people, what they've contributed over time and, uh, and the philanthropy that continued uh, into their mid-90s. Uh, anyway, uh, the funeral for Rosalind Carter uh, brought together almost all of the former living U.S. presidents and uh, figures from contemporary history as well. We'll talk about that with Brian J. Karam uh, coming up a little later on this hour, and uh, or next hour rather, and talk about how much uh, that woman did as uh, in her role as First Lady, but even well beyond that. And as well, you know, I found this fascinating. We're going to bring Tim Powers in to talk about this. Uh, most of the time that uh, most of the time people in the East just don't give a darn about the West because, <laughs> you know, we got our own stuff going on here. Uh, and, and that includes Alberta. And I, I, I think if I was to say something like, um, you know, uh, Alberta thinks that uh, Ottawa is uh, neglecting it and really we don't pay much attention to it. We used to have uh, Daniel Smith on 
who is now the premier of Alberta. We used to have her, remember we used to have, uh, she had a radio show in Calgary. We'd go back and forth and do like a simulcast. She'd hammering, she'd be hammering me with stuff that, no, I, I don't know, I can't explain that. And, you know, Alberta's always been screaming and yelling, um, you know, that it never gets much attention. And now, because of Daniel Smith, I, I don't think the rest of Canada can stop talking about Alberta. It's Alberta this and Alberta that and Alberta's doing this and Alberta... To which, you know, and I lived in Alberta for three years. It's like, who the hell cares what Alberta's doing? We didn't up until now, but with Daniel Smith, oh, my goodness. You know, I don't know. Uh, it just seems bizarre. And and the closer we seem to be able to get with technology, the farther we become uh, in person and, and really don't know what the left hand is doing, does the right or vice versa. So uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on in the show as well. All right, reason we're playing Christmas, uh, you know, because theoretically Christmas music, I don't know, should it start before December 1st? I, I think post-pandemic, every all those all those dates and, and thresholds, whatever, are off. I think you just go and it feels good. Uh, and uh, right after Halloween sounds perfect for me. But a big date for us here at CHML, the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope Flicks, the switch, uh, coming up this Friday at uh, Gore Park. And uh, it's going to be a great occasion, as it has been since the mid 90s 1960s to talk about all of this. Olivia Mackay with us, president of the CHML Children's Fund and here now. Olivia, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you, Scott. I'm just suffering from a little cold. Uh Oh, that's okay. It's that time of year, you know. Yes. I mean, uh, there you go. All right. So talk a little bit about uh, the history of this and how this all started, because again, this has been going on for a long time and there's a lot of new Hamiltonians in town. Yes, it started 47 years ago with CHML. It started off as the Christmas Tree of Hope and then morphed into the Children's Fund. So a lot of our funding does go out at Christmas, but we also uh, donate throughout the year. So um, I'll have donations, you know, ready to go in January, February, March. Uh, We donate from anything from necessities of life, camp, school supplies, clothes, uh, toys, food, shampoo, you know, uh, um, body stuff, anything that kids need and that a kid can be a kid and they don't have to feel the burden that they can't participate. And as you mentioned, this goes on 12 months of the year, but the children's uh, CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign, obviously one of the biggest uh, generators of funds throughout the Christmas, uh, not only the Christmas season, but uh, obviously money that is spent throughout the course of that. Talk a little bit about the charities, because these are all children-based charities. Yeah, so the charities, uh, you know, they're for low-income families. Um, they we help service, you know, Food for Kids, which is a great charity. They go into schools and pack bags for kids who don't have food on the weekends, which is a big thing where they'll get food during the week. We help uh, Good Shepherd, Neighbor to Neighbor, Salvation Army. Uh, Living Rock is another great one because those are for the older kids. So those, that's kind of like the kids that people kind of forget, you know, the 12-plus. So when we do the toy drive, we ask for a lot of those kind of gifts where it's 12 plus, you know, the body washes and stuff like that. So it's not only just for kids, but it's also for the young adolescents that we help out through the charity. And then through the 47 years, we've donated over $6.3 million into Hamilton and uh, the Burlington community. And we basically are just the conduit. We're we're the middle person. We just collect the funds and then redi- uh, redistribute them to other charities that need them. Uh, and it all 100% goes right through, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, one, one charity applied uh, 
uh, for funding for the month of December, and all the funding was going to go to fresh fruit and fresh food, you know, veggies and, and fruit and all that kind of stuff that's hard to donate because, it, you know, it can go, go bad. So they'll come to us saying, you know, we would like to help these families out to get that fresh food that they wouldn't usually get. Um, and, you know, and it's, it's so great because it's so nice to see the charities that need the help that we're able to come and help them. And if we can't help them with funding, we'll help them with toys as well. Because we also run Operation Santa Claus Toy Drive that we took over from Jimmy Lomax yeah. in 2010. So we're able to help charities, you know, sometimes with a Christmas party funding to help with what they need, plus toys on top. So every kid, they can help get a present under the tree at Christmas. So we're basically, we'll take anything. Yes. So we will take, we, in our, our toy drive, we take, we also take food. We, we do take used clothing for the charities that do take the used clothing as well. And we donate the charities that will just take food. Um, we take diapers and formulas and baby food and give that to essential aid or the baby depot. Those are two charities that specialize um, more on the baby side as well. Um, and, you know, we'll take uh, toys of any kind and donations of any kind. So what's happening this Friday? And talk about the how the Christmas Tree of Hope kicks things off for this season. Yeah, so it's our, you know, it's that kind of one thing that shines a light on the charity. So we'll light our tree. Again, it's the 47th year that it's happening. Um, and it's in partnership with the downtown BIA and the city of Hamilton. And they decorate this big, beautiful tree for us. And the downtown BIA will have a lot of festivities going around in the park that day. And there might be a special surprise guest with Santa Claus. So you can come see him. And uh, it's just it's a fun family um, event. There's going to be music and samples. You'll be live on site with Jim. So it's great to come see you. You can come donate. You can come drop off a toy. Why want to wait as well? We'll be on site with Brian West from 2 to 6. And you'll be there 3 to 7. All right, sounds cool. And if people want to find out, uh, there's a million ways to to to, to contribute, uh, as you said, whatever it is that you want to contribute. And, and obviously, all of it's on the website at 900chml.com. But there's lots of ways you can send cash. Yeah, so you can text the word donate to 30333. Go to 900chml.com. You can donate through uh, the PayPal giving fund or canadahelp.org. You can get my information on site to call me and I accept donations. We have a credit card machine. You can drop by and see Kelly at reception at 875 Main Street West. Uh, you can visit us at the mall this weekend as well uh, to drop off toys or any donations at CF Lime, which will be on site from 10 to 4 uh, with the street team and all three radio stations. All right, Olivia Mackay with us, president of the CHML Children's Fund. And, of course, we like the CHML children, uh, CHML Christmas Tree of Hope coming up at Gore Park uh, on Friday. We will see you all there. And all the details on how you can help us help the kids at 900CHML.com. And there's lots of ways. Olivia, as always, thanks so much for the time. Good luck this year. Thank you. Thank you so much. You might remember uh, this stuff got really hot and heavy when uh, we learned out that uh, we learned later that uh, the prime minister uh, stayed in a uh, six thousand dollar a night uh, hotel room during the Queen's funeral ceremonies, and so then obviously uh, many were looking very closely when it time it came time for King Charles' coronation. Uh, how much did everybody spend? Let's bring in Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, and here now, Franco. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, thanks for having me on today. 
So uh, the numbers are coming out from King Charles' uh, coronation and such. Are the numbers as big as they were for the Queen's funeral? Oh, they're big. $534,000 was the Canadian taxpayer's tab. Isn't that nice, folks? We spent more than $530,000 to send 102 delegates to the King's coronation for three days. And, you know, I understand that the King's coronation is a big event. I get that. But that being said, the government of Canada doesn't have a blank check to spend more than half a million dollars so 102 people can go to England for three days. You know, let's bring, bring down those numbers a little bit further. So $534,000 over 102 people for three days, that's a cost to taxpayers of about $5,200, so 5200 bucks per each traveler. And folks, that doesn't even consider airfare, right? That's just like hotel expenses and other meal expenses. So this is a huge tab for many Canadian taxpayers. All right. Uh, that was my next question was how much does this include? What does this actually include? Yeah, this is like hotel bills. You got meal expenses. Folks, we were even expensed for their beer and wine. Okay. You had bureaucrats. They bought $300 worth of wine and beer for the flights for London. And it looks like Canadian taxpayers picked up that tab. Then they spent over 500 smackers at Majestic Wine London. Sounds nice. Then, of course, there is the nice, fancy accommodations brought to you by the Canadian taxpayers. Um, $305,000 spent at the Edwardian Pastoria Hotel. It's a high-end luxury hotel chain in London. They also spent about forty-five grand at Great Scotland Yard Hotel and about almost $16,000 at the Southampton Row Hotel. Um, so look, fancy hotels. Uh, it looks like a huge tab to Canadian taxpayers, but the real issue here is not even just the dollar figure. It's the fact that this has become the rule, not the exception, to bring as many people as possible to take the sweetest rides, to stay in the fanciest hotels, and then to send the bill back home to Canadian taxpayers. So um, as, you, as you list off some of those numbers, some of them don't seem out of line, but where there seems to be issue is just the amount of people that seemingly need to go to this thing at 102. Do, do we have any breakdown of who they are and why that many need to go? Yeah, well, we do know like the total overall amount. So we know that Trudeau's delegation had 87 people. We know Governor General Mary Simon's delegation um, had the remaining, right? So about 15. But, the, but you're totally right. I mean, in one respect, this is still a pretty big bill for each traveler, right? 5200 bucks per traveler for three days was the cost of taxpayers. And of course, as I mentioned, that doesn't even include airfare. So, so that is a big bill. But the reason that this bill becomes staggering is because we sent 102 people. 102 people. Like, I understand the prime minister going. I understand the governor general going. Uh, but why are we sending the other 100 people? Like, maybe you can make an argument for a couple others, but 102 people paid for by the Canadian taxpayer for a three-day trip to England? I think that's where the eye-popping, eyebrow-raising cost to taxpayers really set in. Uh, it seems that the Prime Minister has curbed his hotel spending on a personal level. Uh, we don't seem to see <laughs> anything standing out like $6,000 a night uh, hotel room on the Thames. 
Wow, isn't that a low bar, <laughs> right? At least he didn't spend six thousand dollars per night on a hotel this time. Oh, but that God, includes, that but, but that in, but that comes with. Come on, let's be serious, Franco. That comes with lobby entertainment, right? You get the piano playing in the in the lobby too. <laughs> well, you know, we're joking, but this also kind of brings together another important part. Right. That we've just seen so many stories of them absolutely wasting our money all around the world. Um, we talk about the six thousand dollar per night luxury hotel suite that Mr. Trudeau stayed in that came with complimentary butler service. Uh, what about this one? This is a doozy. When Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spent sixty one thousand dollars on hotel rooms in Manhattan during a star studded two day anti-poverty summit. I'm pretty sure there's many other ways to spend 61 grand that would actually help uh, people who are struggling rather than putting up Trudeau and his band of bureaucrats in a downtown New York City hotel room. Or what about the fact that when we sent the governor general to Iceland, uh, she spent, what, $71,000 on a luxury limo service when her hotel was a 10 minute walk away for the conference center. Or, of course, the now infamous Middle East trip where the governor general and her 30-person entourage racked up almost $100,000 on fancy airplane food, including Beef Wellington. And I know what you're thinking, folks. Beef Wellington on an airplane? You can't even get Beef Wellington-flavored chips on Air Canada or WestJet. <laughs> uh, you know, but, you, you know, the prime, the prime Minister's office is one thing, but, you know, the common thread through all of this is, and that keeps popping up is the Governor General's office and yeah. how much that is involved here. Well, yeah, no kidding. Hey, I mean, time and time again, we see Rideau Hall just absolutely wasting our money so frivolously. Uh, look, I think you need a culture change. And I think that culture change needs to start at the top. Uh, that has to be in the prime minister's office, but it also has to be at Rideau Hall. And, you know, I'm going to go one step further and actually make a concrete recommendation that would help solve these things. The governor general is the king's representative in Canada. Okay, so I can understand the argument that the governor general has to go to the United Kingdom to meet with the monarchy. But if the king wants to send the governor general to like Expo 2020 in Dubai, right, that trip to the Middle East, the Canadian taxpayers shouldn't be paying for it. We shouldn't be paying for the governor general to essentially be traveling all around the world on our dime. We already have a diplomatic service that I'm sure we pay an arm and a leg for. Right. So I think that's a concrete recommendation and all this international travel outside of going back and forth to the United Kingdom that the governor general is currently uh, doing right now. Uh, we are hearing of cuts in government, Franco. Do, does any of this <laughs> seem to be making it into the into the headlines at all? Or is there any cutting here? Well, hold on a second. Right. Politicians within the Liberal Party are claiming cuts, right? They want people to think that they're not completely mismanaging our finances, but that's all spin. We just got the budget update. What was it, last week, maybe two weeks ago? Um, but they're not cutting any anything, right? They're actually increasing spending by $15 billion this year and then increasing spending by an extra $30 billion next year. You know, pro tip for our finance department and, and our minister, Christia Freeland, if you're increasing spending by billions of dollars every single year, you're saving money wrong. All right. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. The bill is in on the delegation to the coronation of King Charles. And um, there you have it. Uh, Franco, as always, stay on the case. Love having you and uh, <laughs> be well. Awesome. Thanks for having me today. That was fun.
food pricing, food inflation, and the cost of feeding families and such. But uh, another issue has come to mind from uh, for Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. And that is what happens when food needs to be recalled. And there's issues, whether it's around salmonella or anything else of that nature. Uh, how do we incre- increase our awareness of what is got, uh, going on? Dr. Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University with us now. Sylvain, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. I'm close to you today. I'm in Toronto. All right. Great to hear. Uh, you didn't bring the bad weather with you, did you? Um, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you know, this time of the year, obviously, it reinforces how much food we get from warmer climes in other parts of the world as we start to head into a winter. Uh, there's been some issue with cantaloupe of late. How does this uh, put focus on our ability to recall food when it is needed? Well, uh, often uh, the CFI will uh, will uh, inform the public that there is a recall. Uh, uh, class one recalls are are particularly important because it involves uh, all provinces or many provinces, and uh, typically the CFI would rely on uh, mass media, uh, i.e., you guys, to inform the public uh, that uh, there is a, a recall product. Uh, but uh, we all know that uh, there's been some challenges <laughs> within media uh, from a financial perspective. Uh, I mean, it's been very difficult, very challenging for media. And secondly, uh, the issues with Meta, uh, a lot of people actually did get information from, say, Facebook, but they no longer can get information from Facebook as a result of what has happened with uh, with Meta. And so certainly I think we all need to be concerned about uh, about recalls because in the case of cantaloupes in particular, uh, this product is actually eaten raw most of the time, mm. if not all the time. And the one way to get rid of salmonella and E. coli is to cook it out as much as possible. So with meat, we all do that. But with, uh, say, onions, uh, romaine lettuce, that happened four years ago, and now cantaloupes, uh, we're exposing uh, consumers to uh, to unwarranted risk. Unfortunately, if they don't get the proper information, they may get sick. So, should this offer uh, does this information uh, should this information come from government inspection services? Should it come from manufacturers? Whose responsibility is it to get it to us? Well, I just I spoke about this just an hour ago here in Toronto. Uh, to food regulators, and uh, my message to them is that we need to figure out a way to better communicate risk uh, to the public when a recall like this uh, happens. Guess what's going to happen over the next couple of days? People will walk into the grocery store and will avoid cantaloupes. Yeah, yeah. They'll stop. I mean, it doesn't matter where cantaloupes come from. People will just just not buy them, and that will lead to a lot of waste. That's exactly what happened with romaine lettuce four years ago. During the holidays, I'm not sure if you remember that episode. Uh, it was a disaster. Mm. A lot of people just didn't want to get close to romaine lettuce. Grocers couldn't give romaine lettuce away. Mm. Probably the same with cantaloupes, so it leads to more food waste. Now, at the same time, you got a lot of people who may not be listening to some news and may actually have these cantaloupes at home. And uh, without, without the proper information... They can actually eat a contaminated um, fruit, and that's the problem. 
Okay, so let's clear that up right now. Message for customers that may be listening or concerned about cantaloupe. What should they be aware of? What, what, what's the message on that? Well, basically, uh, if you bought a uh, cantaloupe uh, branded uh, as uh, Malachit and Rudy from Mexico, uh, you uh, don't eat it. You can actually bring your cantaloupe back. Uh, you don't need a receipt. You go, you'll get refunded, essentially. Uh, grocers will do that. Uh, and, but if they don't do that, you should actually bring your business somewhere else. But the thing, the thing that I think we should be thinking about when it comes to recalls when we think about communication uh, and risks, uh, we should develop some sort of a system that allows people to know in real time if they're um, exposed to some of these products. If you remember at the very beginning of COVID, the government spent millions of dollars on an app telling you if you were exposed Mm. to someone that actually had COVID, if you remember that, uh, when I saw that happen, I merely thought, why can't we do this with food recalls? I mean, technology with AI today, with everything we have access to, it is quite possible mm. to develop a technology telling people if they have a recall product instead of just pulling everything off shelves, throwing everything out, waste a lot of food, exposing people to some risks. Let's actually develop a system that doesn't necessarily or heavily rely on media because there's so much noise out there. There's Israel, there are strikes. I mean, there are all sorts of things going on in the world. Media has to do its job informing the public. If you add that extra pressure, asking media to inform the public, I think it's, it's so 2010. We're in 2023, <laughs> almost in 2024. We, need, we should figure out another system. Canada needs to step up its food recall game. Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The funeral for Rosalind Carter uh, brought together uh, almost all living former U.S. presidents as well as uh, many figures from contemporary history. Uh, Of course, the former first lady and wife of Jimmy Carter, Brian J. Cram, is going to be joining us now. Journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy and political analyst for CNN and here now. Brian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well, Scott. I hear you're avoiding the snow. Uh, trying very hard to do that, Brian. That is for sure. It, it can get ugly up here this time of the year. So, Brian, where does the where does Rosalind Carter fit in the the histor- history of the first ladies uh, in the United States? How does she stand out? I think she stands out as one of the first. Uh, I mean, they often point at Jackie Kennedy as being the first uh, um, first lady to be an activist, but I believe that really that falls on Rosalind's shoulders. And I, having met her on a couple of occasions and uh, I, her and my grandmother were uh, actually friends. I, I would tell you, she was one of the kindest people that I, that I had the uh, opportunity to ever meet. And I'm not going to pretend that I knew her well, but I, I have met her and I thought she was a very, uh, very kind hearted woman, very uh, thoughtful person. And uh, in the pantheon of uh, first ladies, she's right up there among the best. And and a long, long life of philanthropy and helping people. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, what was funny is I, a friend of mine, and I were talking about this the other day. It was during those Carter years, those four years from 76 to 1980, where we all kind of thought that things would be okay. We had gotten through the civil rights uh, problems. We had gone through Vietnam. We had assassinations after assassination. And it finally seemed like things were calming down. And then, of course, we were introduced to uh, Ronald Reagan, and that changed everything. But I remember the the Carter era itself was um, was probably one of the calmest eras of uh, in my country's history. And Rosalind Carter was a big part of that. I, um, you know, I I oftentimes think about uh, what happened when she was there and Betty Ford was there. Those two women uh, really kind of changed the way. Um, that we looked at first ladies and I, I know a lot of people go back again to Jackie, but it was, it was Rosalind Carter and, and right after uh, um, Betty Ford that really ch- kind of changed the idea that the first lady was more than just a, a, a featured player. She was actually, um, and she's, and she helped her husband out immensely. So I, I would say that um, she did a lot while she was there and she did a lot after she left and Habitat for Humanity and Rosalind Carter's work there is is you, you can't equal it, and and it literally put Habitat for Humanity on the map. Uh, do you think she had a calming effect over the country or her husband? Had one on me. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I think she was. She had a lot of common sense. She was um, no nonsense, but she was also like you know my grandmother said she was one of the kindest people she ever knew. So, um, yeah, I, I think she had a, a. It was a settling effect. It was. It was an effect when when an adult is in the room, you recognize it. And she was an adult in the room. Um, lots there in attendance and uh, paying tribute. Donald Trump, Barack Obama, George W. Not there, but Melania Trump was. Are you surprised at that? No, um, I, you know, I was joking that, you know, Donald Trump didn't show up because, you know, he has no respect. But um, I'm telling you, a tough room. But uh, it's. <laughs> you know, that um, it doesn't surprise me that other first ladies were there when other presidents were not. Um, and it, it doesn't surprise me that Melania was there. And I think it shows um, a great deal of respect for showing up. What about others that weren't? Well, I I, I can't speak to that because I don't know what uh, yeah. why they didn't show up. I, I you know, they're you know what you mentioned, three presidents that didn't show up. I don't know why they weren't there. Um you know, and maybe they had to ha- have their hair cleaned. I don't know. That <laughs> seems to me like the, the appropriate thing to do would be to be there. But if you can't, I'm not going to judge you for that because I don't know the circumstances. You talked about how the role of First Lady has changed over the years. And and obviously, Rosalind Carter, uh, one of those. How do you think she influenced other First Ladies? I think her, uh, her stoicism, her um, adult-like demeanor, her professionalism, all uh, bode well for those who followed. And I think it was um, Rosalind Carter who gave the first lady's office that, that role of dignity that it uh, so desperately, it didn't desperately uh, overspeak that, that it deserved. She gave it an additional um, uh, amount of respect that the office deserved. And I don't think you're going to ever take that away from her for what she did. Brian J. Karam with us, journalist and author, White House correspondent and political analyst. Brian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Stay out of the snow, brother. We'll try. A quick break here. We're coming right back. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. You know, I, I lived in Calgary for a short period of time in the late 80s. It was a great time uh, in my life, and I just love it uh, and loved it. Uh, but I remember hearing the same thing uh, over and over again after being called an Eastern scum and pig, even by Mayor Ralph Klein of Calgary at the time. All in fun, of course. Uh, but they always complained that nobody in the East ever gave a damn about the West. Nobody ever talks about the West. Nobody cares about the West. And it's like, it's not that we don't care about you. We just we're busy thinking about other things in the East. And Alberta's not top of mind. But it seems now we are talking more about Alberta in the last year than I think we've talked in my lifetime. And I'm not sure why that is. Other than Alberta has a political figure, which uh, the extreme left are really interested in, uh, Daniel Smith is uh, obviously the premier. And you might remember we used to simulcast our radio shows because it, and it was all her idea. I want to be heard in the East. Can we come on and we'll we'll do it? And she'd ask me all kinds of difficult questions that I never had the answer to and, and, and basically trying to be heard. And now I guess they are being heard. But I find it just fascinating that we're so uh, enthralled with what's going on in one province. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, who perhaps would rather have us looking at the other coast tim how are you today <laughs> well scott you know me well you're right but you know what hey it's, uh, it's november may as well talk about alberta they want us to talk about them so let's do it i again am i far off i mean you know I, i'm a 60 year old guy i was out there in the 80s and and again hosting a show simulcasting a show with daniel smith like just before the pandemic and you know crying that, that nobody ever listens to the west and now that's all we seem to be talking about out here is what she's doing why well she wants us to be doing that because she wants that to uh, in gender recognition at home in Alberta for her. Um, you know, she thinks there's political benefits to it. Danielle, I think, and uh, we both know her, as you say, I, I used to do her show a fair bit, and you, you did as well, and simulcast, as you pointed out. It does matter to her, I think, what the financial center of Canada thinks in Ontario and the like, uh, because she'd like to have their, um, their investment. Um, you know, but, but a lot of the stuff she's talking about, like Sovereignty Act and um, uh, COVID Task Force, all of that stuff's a bit out there. And the people she would like to court don't have a lot of trucker trade with flaky and, or, or, or inopportune or not real uh, investment opportunities. Because Sovereignty Act is, is, is not, it would, would not hold up under the scrutiny of law. Uh, what they're talking about from Mr. Manning's report, if they were to bring that all in the COVID task force, would you know challenge their reputation internationally. But it gets us talking about them, so maybe that's a win. Is it her blowing her own horn, or now for some reason we're interested in what they're doing? Because uh, you know they've been blowing they've been blowing their own horn for an awfully long time. Yeah, uh, I just think that's a habitual thing, right? Uh, that that. That plays well yeah. at home, and I think Albertans want people to know, and fair enough, I guess, that they matter too. Um, I think there's a sense of insecurity at the moment, not that you nor I are a psychologist here, but with the challenges around the future of oil and gas and climate change, where does Alberta fit? 
And I think she's trying to say that uh, Alberta's going to whatever uh, where wherever Alberta fits, they're going to make the choice on how they fit. Thus, the Sovereignty Act. So it's a combination of factors. Are we or the rest of a are we or the rest of Canada or everybody other than Alberta and the East? I guess are, are are we are we scared? Are we concerned about them or what they're going to become? Are we are we concerned that this is just going to be a province of freedom convoys? I don't know. I, look, I, I think at heart, most Canadians would just like to get along with the rest of other Canadians when they have time yeah. to think about that. Right. I think we focus on our own communities and where we live and the challenges that we have. But we recognize we have a pretty good country. We recognize, yeah, there are irritants in the country. There are petty jealousies as there are in any community. I don't think we it, we, we should never take any province for granted. But I think Alberta in the long run, you know, they, they've had pockets of separatism pop, pop up. You would have seen it when you were out there in the 80s, but it's never really mm-hmm. gone too far. What they have now is kind of a buoyant uh, faux populism led by a leader who's trying to style herself that way. But but ultimately, um, yeah, I don't think Alberta's going to run off anywhere. Uh, do you think the rest of the country is concerned about their actions? Because well, again, I'm having I'm 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 having a hard time believing Ontario even cares. Well, I, I think the one thing that people do care about, which she hasn't gotten traction on, uh, except through her own caucus, is if they were going to somehow pull out of the Canada Pension Plan, and then there was a big you know kerfuffle over who actually got what. Um, but as you have seen, as you've shared with your listeners. There's lots of people in uh, most every other province has come in and said, no, that's not going to work, Danielle. And Ottawa said that's not going to work, Danielle. So, yeah, that that may be the thing we should be concerned about. But I don't think it's going to work in line with the others. Uh, Does her or Alberta's actions uh, ruffle the feathers of Ottawa or do they even care? Because, again, they just seem to kind of blow them off. I think they present each other with unique uh, political opportunities, uh, but not real threats. So, you know, Justin Trudeau can point to Danielle Smith and and use her posturing to his advantage. Equally, Daniel Smith can do the same thing. So political opportunities, but not real threats. Uh, why don't Ottawa and Alberta get along? I don't mean to go down a big history lesson here with you, Tim, but uh, is that something that can be rectified? Can that be repaired or is it just habitual, as you say? Uh, well, there have been times, you know, if, if you, you'll remember the name Don Mazankowski, who Brian Mulroney made deputy prime minister. That was probably, and Anne McClellan from Alberta was Mr. Cretchan's deputy prime minister. The tensions were a little, little higher there. I, I think it's, uh, look, I don't think they really are that far apart because ultimately we all kind of row together. But I think it's just the nature of Canadian political theater that Alberta um, doesn't like the blue-eyed cheeks of the East. And uh, as Peter Lougheed uh, described some, or John Crosby described the Albertans, um, and uh, the rest of the country, you know, we kind of watch with amusement. But Alberta's helped lots of Canadian provinces. Lots of Canadians have helped Alberta. Where would Alberta be without Newfoundland and Labrador? They wouldn't have a lot of their workforce, for God's sake. We send more people out to Alberta. So as do Ontario. So, yeah, it's theater, Scott.
All right. So that being said, uh, emergency inquiry uh, cases wrapping up in Ottawa. Any, you know, we've only got a second or two left. What are your thoughts as we wind that down? I'm surprised it's not over yet. It, it really has lost the oxygen from when we talked about it three or four, uh, well, longer than that, five or six uh, weeks ago. So I, I, I don't know where this is going to go, but it's not what's on the radar here right now, which maybe is telling in and of itself. Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, talking about uh, Canada's love affair or lack thereof with Alberta. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Love in the East. I uh, hope you're doing well. Take care, buddy. Bye. All right. We've certainly heard over the last little while, a couple of years or so, uh, the push for electric vehicle plants uh, in this country, in this province, and then specifically with, um, y- you know, being involved in all forms of assembly, including a battery manufacturer and such a, a plant in uh, Windsor announced, uh, obviously lots of fanfare govern- and jobs that would be coming as a result of that. And then the concern that those jobs would be from people uh, from another part of the world, as opposed to those in Windsor or uh, wherever these plants are, are located. On Monday, the NDP, the Bloc Quebecois, uh, told the House of Government Operations Committee that they supported the conservative push for the government to publish its contracts with five electric vehicle and battery builders who promised to build plants in Canada in exchange for massive federal subsidies. With more on all of this, Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and here now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing very well. Thank you, Scott. Ian, let's start with the plant in Windsor. Uh, obviously, many in Windsor thinking this was going to be a big source of employment. Now we're hearing that, and the, the numbers have varied, and I'm not sure how confirmed any of this is, that a lot of that uh, contingent of workers would be coming uh, from Korea and such. Uh, any more on that, and, and, and should this sort of stuff be disclosed, considering how much governments have put into it? Um, well, the first point is... Um, Anyone who looked at the the numbers, and I'm talking the job shortage numbers in Canada, before the uh, contract was announced, before the plant was announced, would have realized really quickly that there is a very serious shortage. To be uh, precise, this is StatScan data, over 800,000 workers. Now, that's across the whole economy and all parts of the economy. But you know, that's a good proxy for the measure of especially areas such as sophisticated, uh, you know, engineers and and uh, related types of jobs in a very high technology or advanced technology plant. So I thought uh, I even said at the time, uh, where are they going to get the workers from? Because we're short at that time. Last last August, when I was talking about this, I think with you, um, it was over a million job shortages uh, in StatsCan. Now it's down to about 800, 850. It's still very, very large. And so it was inevitable, I said, that they were either going to poach workers from other companies and set up a game of sort of musical chairs, you know, robbing employees from one company to another, or they would have to go outside and they went outside. Um, So it was predictable. Uh, It should have been the I'm sure the government understood this. Um, But to to your second point, because I think it's much more important. uh, And that's the transparency issue. Um, Charles Souza, who I, I mentioned him because he's quoted in the National Post article saying he's shocked at this request to publicize the information. Um, I, I'm shocked that he's shocked because he was the former Minister of Finance in Ontario. So what? What's that got to do with this? Well, I've been teaching the strategy course for 35 years and making my students look up companies that are publicly traded. And they are publicly traded companies must disclose enormous amounts of information under the OSC. Ontario Securities Commission, which is under the 
purview, if I can put it that way, of guess who? That would be the Minister of Finance that Charles Sousa once was. And there's a principle in, in, in private capital markets that if you're a public traded company, you must disclose material information. You can't keep it secret. And so this is a cardinal principle that was established, my goodness gracious, in the second, in the depression. And then that led to Franklin Roosevelt setting up the Securities and Exchange Commission and that principle that investors, uh, whether large or small, have a right to know what the company is doing with their money. And that is in, in our laws too. So it is just, pardon me, but it is just bogus, specious nonsense of the liberals to say that this is protected information. When a company, large, medium, or small, deals with governments, plural, doesn't matter if it's the government of the United States, government of Ontario, government of Canada, they can expect their relationship, if they're getting public funds from the taxpayer, to be scrutinized, and they can expect that they're going to have to disclose information. And to use that famous phrase by the great liberal Democratic president, Harry S. Truman, if you can't stand the heat, then get out of the kitchen. So if you're going to take the money, then you're going to be transparent. And if you don't want to be transparent, get out of the kitchen and say, no, thank you. I don't want your $15 billion because I want to be secretive. Uh, we have often heard that we have lots of smart people here to do the jobs. That's why companies have worked, uh, have come here. But really, that's not the case. We have a tremendous shortage. So any company that comes is going to have to bring its own workers with it. Yes. I mean, when you look at the shortages there across the economy, it's not just, I mean, because they've received so much profile, you know, healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, we, I think there's people sort of default to the, oh, well, we're just short of doctors and nurses, and that's all there is to it. When you actually go drill down into the StatsCan data, it's fascinating, by the way, we've got shortages across the economy. We've got shortages of carpenters. We've got shortages of drywall. We've got shortages of electricians. We've got shortages of engineers. It, it, it there's shortages all over, and 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 so it is. I mean, this is one of our big problems. And in fact, I just did a study, and I argued that the government should be targeting. They claim they're targeting, and I know they're trying to target. So give them credit at Immigration Canada. But I think that they're going to have to do a much better job at so-called labor force uh, employment forecasting and working closely with industries uh, to find out what are you short of? It's not good enough just to say engineers. Are you short of electrical engineers or structural engineers? Are you short of uh, uh, people that work in, have expertise in uh, electronic, electric cars? So we have to do a much better job there, but we are short. And that was one more argument I put forward against the, the subsidy, aside from the fact government shouldn't be picking winners and losers. That's the obvious one. But the, uh, in this instance, it was inevitably going to lead to us, uh, uh, the companies involved, bringing workers in from outside. So then you have to ask a question. Why is the taxpayer spending billions and billions of dollars to subsidize people 15,000 kilometers away, halfway, literally mm -hmm. halfway around the world? The time zone's about 12 hours difference. That's half the world. Why are we subsidizing people halfway around the world? You know, so there's there's some profound questions there that we should be asking. Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, uh, talking about EV battery contracts and our switch to EVs and what that means to the workforce. Ian, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. 
we've talked so much in in regard to uh, food banks of late and just how use has gone up since uh, the global pandemic and such. And, and not only that, the profile of those people using it has widened as well. Let's bring in Ashley Mitchell, Resorts Development Manager with Hamilton Food Share. And here now, Ashley, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me on. So, Ashley, we hear more and more that food bank usage is up. Put it in perspective for it. How? What are the increases like that you have seen? So, I'm sure maybe you've heard the stats, but from last year to this time, uh, this year, we are up about 40% usage. So, we're seeing 40% more people that are accessing food banks in the area, and that includes um, over one-third of those individuals accessing our children. So, our children accessing food banks are up 22% and our seniors accessing food banks are up 16%. So some of our most vulnerable community members are needing our support more and more. And I think this is something that uh, we've noticed across, uh, you know, you know, across the gamut here is, is that the, the, the increases seem to be coming from all demographics from every category. Absolutely. We're seeing all kinds of different family compositions and as well as, you know, people from different um, walks of life that have different primary sources of income. So, you know, we have people that are working full-time jobs and are still just not able to meet their basic needs without our support. And sorry, uh, were you continuing? Continue on, Ashley. Were you going to say no, something? I, oh, no, that's okay. I was just saying that it's not necessarily the uh, someone that you would traditionally think of. It's, it, we're seeing all kinds of families, and the people that have relied on us in the past are relying on us even more. So if someone used to access a food bank maybe once a month, with the you know cost of living going up, with our grocery prices going up, people are having to come out maybe two or three times a month. And then we're seeing even more people who have never needed a food bank before access. So one of the most staggering numbers that came out of last year is that 34% of people that were accessing our emergency food programs in the city were brand new to the emergency food network. Wow, that's something you never want to hear, especially when you think that way back when, when food banks started and such, they were supposed to be a temporary measure. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the way that we were always viewed. We were just a Band-Aid solution, just kind of to temporarily help people. And what we're finding more and more is that we're not a temporary solution. We're actually a service that is allowing individuals in our community to meet other basic needs. So if we can provide people with some groceries that they can feed their families with, that means they have more money in their pocket to pay for their rent that week or put gas in their car so they can go to those full-time jobs or their part-time jobs. If we're able to provide this service, we're helping them keep a a roof over their head because they're going to be able to pay for their housing. It's interesting because actually you just assume that people either need this or they don't need this, but they need it to varying degrees and, and, and those varying degrees are increasing over time, as you said. Absolutely. And we, we see that where there's some people that don't come every single month. People will just come when they really need it. So there might be families in our community that only really need to come out maybe once a year. And then, like I said, then we have on the other end of the spectrum, we have families that are really reliant on our support to just be able to keep a roof over their heads. What message do you have for those who may be thinking of of taking you up on this service, that, but they just don't want to or, or can't bring themselves to do it. What do you say to those people? Honestly, we're here to support every single family and um, 
community member that is experiencing hunger. We don't want to see anybody in our community go hungry, and we are here to help you. So there is no shame in reaching out for support. There are so many people in our community that are going through the exact same thing as you. And the things that we always tell people, especially donors too, when they're you know dropping off a donation, is that this could be you or me at any point. Any one little thing could happen, illness, loss of a job, loss of a family member, any one of us could be at this point. So um, there's really no shame in accessing these services when you need them. So as Hamiltonians, how can we help? What do you need? Absolutely. There's lots of ways you can help if you um, want to make a donation. The great thing about Hamilton Food Share is that we're able to take $1 and turn that into $5 worth of nutritious food. So if you're able to make a financial donation, you can visit hamiltonfoodshare.org and support us over, um, you know, over the holidays. And we'll ensure that those uh, donations are making it out to our member agencies who are working with the public. Um, you can also organize community events that are in support of us or food drives and collect food at your you know, place of business or at your holiday gatherings with your family or at a birthday party. If you, you know, want to forego gifts and you want to collect some food for, um, for Hamilton Future, that's an amazing way you can help. Ashley Mitchell with us, Research Development Manager with Hamilton Food Share. And yes, as you've heard, uh, usage is up, not only in Hamilton, but right the way across the country. Ashley, thanks for the time. Always appreciate it. Good luck this year. Thank you so much, Scott. Lots of chatter over the course of the summer in regard to tent encampments in this city, and not only here, but certainly in communities big and small uh, right the way across the country, uh, so much that um, it became a major issue. And questions were being asked then, what is going to happen to those people when the weather turns cold and the snow starts? And obviously today, a good example of that when uh, Hamilton uh, certainly got a early taste of winter in what is ahead of us. So what is ahead of those that are living outdoors? Let's bring in Michelle Bear, Director of Housing Services, City of Hamilton, in here now. Michelle, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks for having me, Scott. Michelle, obviously a very difficult and challenging situation. Uh, in this past summer, saw uh, an increasing amount of people uh, setting up home in uh, our parks and such and tent encampments. Do we have any idea how many of those people are still out there at this time at the end of November? So at this point, Scott, we're probably seeing still about 280, 280 individuals who are unfortunately still living in encampments in our parks or other city spaces. Are these encampments going to be able to function? Is this going to be able to happen all year round or at least through the winter uh, with conditions that obviously we can expect on any given winter? So ultimately, there's nothing that prevents the encampments from uh, continuing from the protocol perspective. The concern, of course, is the weather and the cold inclement weather overall makes it very difficult, of course, for folks. So really trying to find opportunities wherever possible to, to bring people indoors. Has the colder weather, have you seen those that were in tent encampments try to find other accommodation going to shelters and such as a result of the cold weather? So in past years, that's exactly what happens, sort of as the weather gets colder, even for those for whom shelters are not ideal, people do uh, make the choice to try to get into shelters. The challenge we're having right now is that our shelters um, 
all of them are really at and beyond capacity operating in overflow. And there really isn't that opportunity there. We have a lot of our shelter spaces are being taken up right now by individuals who are, are refugee claimants, asylum claimants. So just competing pressures is not going to allow folks to get inside into shelters from encampments, perhaps. Uh, so a new set of challenges over and above those that are usually unhoused through the year. Correct. So uh, understand, uh, you know, we've talked about various solutions to this. Uh, some have worked, some haven't worked. W- what is going to happen over the course of the winter? Understand you've got like a warming bus and such and, and extra shelter space. How, how do you plan to get through this over the course of the winter? So for this year, we are doing things quite differently from last year. First of all, uh, this is in no way tied to the cold alert that the program that's in place will start on December 1st and run through to March 31st inclusive. So it's not weather dependent, it's it's seasonal. Uh, we are running a warming bus, as you mentioned. So that will start on uh, December 1st this week and run nightly. And it is a warming bus and that people can get on it, get out of the weather for a bit and get warmed up. It will travel a continuous loop and stop at the other uh, warming center shelters along the way. So people can get a ride to a warming center or they can simply use the bus for warming and there are support staff on the bus. In addition to that, we have extended hours at three of our recreation centers. Some of those not downtown, we tried to spread those geographically to give some uh, resource to to individuals outside of the downtown core. Um, And then operating additional overnight warming spaces overall. So we have additional spaces spaces uh, at both uh, Willow's Place, which serves women. And that is in addition to the overnight drop-in that already exists for women at Carol Ann's Place in Hamilton, downtown. We have overnight drop-in for men at Mission Services Men. We're also this year offering some daytime opportunities. We have about 100 spaces in total. Those are flexible, of course, so people come and go throughout the course of the day. So there are spaces, again, at Living Rock, and that's for youth. However, it's for youth up to the age of 25, so some flexibility there for sure. And St. Matthew's House is going to operate a drop-in daytime space as well. So I think more opportunities than we have had in past. In addition, Scott, I would say, too, that we're continuing to work with a couple of the applications that come in, and I am very positive that you're going to see some additions to this list in the week or two to come. Uh, What about um, more chatter around communities, uh, tiny houses, that sort of thing? Uh, are, Are we any closer to a solution there? Unfortunately, for this winter, we're not going to be in a place to have uh, a tiny houses, tiny shelters yeah. set up within the city, but that work continues. Considering where we are this year and, and what has happened over the course of the summer, the, the extra problems, challenges that you have, what do you foresee going through uh, getting into this winter? What do, you, what do you think your biggest challenges are going to be? Our biggest challenges right now is that we're not seeing a decrease overall with respect to the numbers that are unsheltered and giving the ongoing pressures with respect to cost of living, lack of affordable housing overall, and now this pressure that we're experiencing with respect to the the asylum seeker pressure on the shelter system. We're really challenged to even not see a further increase in the number of people who are unfortunately living outdoors. Uh, Are you concerned this is the new normal, especially with the pressures from immigration and and refugee situations? Uh, are Are you concerned this is the way it'll be from now on? 
I'm optimistic that we're going to find a solution and and get out of this. We we have um, we have some strategies that we know that we can work with. We just need to get them in place and get the funding behind it. Uh, it seems almost, Michelle, that you got two separate problems here: one with the <laughs> incoming refugees that you've got to get into the system and probably have a an easier chance of doing that or more guidance for that, and then uh, those that are the unhoused, and the two now have crossed. Correct. That's exactly what we're up against right now, that we have some competing pressures that are trying to make use of the emergency shelter system, a system that's already been under pressure. And so this is a new pressure on top of that. Uh, Any chance of getting more help, government help, in regard to that uh, refugee situation, considering it's a federal issue and such, any more help there to relieve uh, some of the shelter space? Yeah, again, we're optimistic that that will come. We've been working with other orders of government. I know that our uh, council and mayor continues to do that as well. So we're hopeful that, that that will come. And if anybody wants to help, what can is there anything the average citizenry can do to help? I think that if the average citizen wants to help out, the best way to do that perhaps is reach out to some of our agencies that are established in the city now, whether it's these that are providing uh, winter response strategies. We have lots of not-for-profits that do great work, and most, if not all, are always looking for volunteers and help to just keep things going. It's really difficult to staff in these agencies, and um, you know it's hard to come by volunteers as well. So if people want to do something and make a difference, that's probably the best way to do so. Uh, obviously, as we head to the beginning of December, all of these programs are now kicking into place, as you said, through till the end of March. Do you have enough to keep you going with this plan to the spring? We're confident right now that with the plans before us, we do have enough to keep uh, keep us going through spring, meaning that we have places that people can get out of the cold, get inside, get warmed up and perhaps moved on. We're quite hopeful that we're going to add additional spaces to what you see here. Um, and we're also quite hopeful that if we can get enough spaces online, we can take some people perhaps out of encampments completely and move them indoors, at least during the winter months. Michelle Baird with us, Director of Housing Services for the City of Hamilton, uh, trying to get everybody housed, or at least as best they can, for the winter months. Michelle, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer to have the last word this one via text from ken in regard to the governor general's office why isn't the governor general's office funded by the monarchy if the governor general is going somewhere uh and is needed by the royal family why aren't they paying for it what a freaking scam that is signed ken keep right except to pass 